And I'm going to right now um, ask you to get your Bibles. Let's stand. And we are going to read um, this passage of Scripture, John chapter 14, and uh, beginning at verse 15. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Thank you, you may be seated. Last week, we jumped into John's Gospel once again. We have been working our way through this incredible Gospel. And um, we landed in chapter 14, which is where Jesus is sitting in the upper room with his disciples the night before he is going to be arrested, betrayed, and taken into custody. And we have Jesus here speaking to his disciples in, in the context of fear, anxiety. And outside on the streets, Judas Iscariot has already gone, and he's going to the religious leadership so that they can organize and figure out what they're going to do to arrest Jesus. But inside here we have Jesus giving tender counsel to his disciples. And he was giving them counsel for troubled hearts, promising them a place in heaven, that he was the only way, that he was a sufficient Savior, 
and that ultimately he had a divine purpose in what they were going to face. But in all of these responses that Jesus gives, he is the agent and the reason for their comfort. His counsel was, trust me in all things. Do the things that I have called you to do. Pray to me when you need help. So he's given these promises, but he is behind all these promises. He is the one that is the satisfier of all those promises. So Jesus, though, as we continue on in John 14, is not done bringing comfort to his disciples. He has more to say more to promise, more to explain, more to show about his divine purposes for his disciples. And ultimately, we enter into this text by recognizing that we are also his disciples. Now, there is going to be some uniqueness that we need to understand here. And that is that the disciples who ultimately became the apostles had a special giftingness, might want to say, at the early uh, the establishment of the church. There were certain ways in which they were able to minister and to function. That is not necessarily true for all of us. But we read in here and understand that we are like these disciples and the truths that Jesus is giving flesh out into our context too. And in particular, Jesus here is going to promise them the Holy Spirit. Now, it has been my observation as I have grown up in the church for there to be two polarizing extremes concerning the person and work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, first of all, in one context, one extreme, is everything. And with, I want to say, the establishment of what we would consider the charismatic church, um, uh, we find this attitude permeating um, so much of what they do. It's a very broad category, and there's certainly different levels of the, that extremeness. Um, but in the end, um, there's, there's really an, an unwarranted focus and attention and experience of the Holy Spirit. Now, I grew up in this context, all right? I've sat in the churches where people are all gathered together speaking in tongues. I've had people come up to me with what they thought was a word of knowledge. I've watched the same person week after week after week give the same prophetic word. It's like the habit. It's the time in the service for them to stand up and to say what they're going to say. I've seen the ugliness of it. I've also seen, though, in that context, genuine people who love God, okay? But we're not talking here about the salvation of those people necessarily, but we're talking about an extreme position as it results from consideration of the, um, of the Holy Spirit. All right, excuse me, a little pause here. I've just been informed that um, the bathrooms out there are unusable, so um, use the ones in the gymnasium across from the basketball courts, okay? Sorry, we can strike that from the record when we record this, all right? No one wants to hear about bathrooms, all right? Or maybe we'll just leave it there and say, did you get the bathroom message? All right, all right, all right, so all right. Now, I just, I want you to understand, I, I have, I've grown up, I've grown up in the context here where, where these two extremes are very present. And, and like I said, I, I've been there when there is speaking in tongues, but not for the purpose of edification of the body, but as a prayer language, even they would consider an angelic language, which is not what Scripture is talking about, although they would be convinced that it is. 
um, careful study of, of tongues would, would establish that the purpose of it is for the edification of the body and so that those who are present can understand what is being said. I've been there when there have been personal words of knowledge. Maybe you've been in that kind of context too, um, where people have believed that they have some special message, unique message from the Holy Spirit to someone else. I've been in the context where men and women are claiming to be faith healers because God has somehow anointed them, a special anointing that God has put on them to do uh, what, they've, you know, what they believe God has called them to do, in particular things like casting out demons or healing those that are sick. And I've been there in the context of genuine people who are eager for those things to take place, and I've been there in the context where there have been abusers, incredible abusers of, of that kind of responsibility. Now, these are just some of the few examples um, in this ideological camp. The tendency, however, in this very broad category is for the Holy Spirit to be the focus that he is behind everything, that he's in everything, that he is to be sought after, to be experienced, and to be obeyed and listened to. But here is the subtle tendency, ultimately, of those who embrace this position. And it is the bypassing of Scripture and its clear teaching. In other words, it's not so much what Scripture says, but, you see, the Holy Spirit told me to do X, Y, and Z. And so there's more emphasis on what the person feels and perceives that the Holy Spirit is calling them to do or wanting them to do. So it then leads, this, this almost setting aside of the Word of God, there's still a respect for it, but it's almost like, well, if the Holy Spirit is telling me, then I set aside the Word of God, which ultimately leads to another very subtle tendency, um, and that is to pursue Christianity not in obedience to God's Word, but by the subjective feelings of the perceived movements or guidance of the Holy Spirit. So the word of God then is set aside to some degree, and it's the Holy Spirit, perceived Holy Spirit, that then is guiding someone to act and to behave in a certain way. And so when this happens, hear this now, the gospel has been diminished, it's been distorted, and ultimately eclipsed because the focus is no longer on the finished work of Christ on the cross, but on the exciting and ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in, mirac in a miraculous way. Okay, in, in, in that kind of context, and I've heard it over and over again, people would walk out of a service and say, ah, oh, the Holy Spirit was really present today. And you have to ask yourself the question, how do you measure that? Was it because people were waving their hands together in unison? Was it because there was great singing? Was it because the Word of God was preached? How do you measure the Holy Spirit's activity and presence? Is it a feeling? You know? You've got to be careful with that because you could be talking about there was great conviction, okay? Conviction is biblical, and conviction is something the Holy Spirit does in people's hearts. And conviction results in people repenting of their sins. And you can measure that when people are falling on their knees before God or they're, they're just bowing their head in, in contrite humility before God. But oftentimes it becomes a here and now gospel that breeds an experience uh, of God's power now mentality. In other words, I've got to go experience him now. I've got to have this incredible experience that, that God wants me to have now. And so people rush off to Toronto or to, to Brownsville, Florida, and, and they want to get this special blessing from God and get the anointing. Now, uh, the, the ultimate extreme of this, I think, is what gives um, this particular camp a very, very bad name. And that, that would be uh, the stereotypical televangelist um, that... Um, focuses on the health, wealth, and prosperity. Now, I'm, I'm making a broad swoop here, okay? Having been in that camp, having experienced that camp, 
I recognize there are, there are different extremes to that, but there is this, this, this emphasis on the Holy Spirit that is unnecessary, that is really not the focus of Scripture, and it has some rippling consequences that we ought to be very, very concerned about. Now, again, to be very clear, I'm not saying that all those within the charismatic camp are unbelievers. I'm saying that much, if not most, of the charismatic camp has a very distorted understanding of the Holy Spirit, which then results in an unbiblical approach to how one lives their life for the glory of God. Now, if you're saying, well, Rod, you, you don't know what you're talking about, uh, uh, the, the issue isn't whether I know what I'm talking about, but please understand, I grew up in a Christian home. My father, my parents were godly people. My, my father was a, an Assemblies of God pastor, okay, so I, I was in churches where things were practiced. I've seen it, I've observed it, I've, I've challenged people with God's word to explain it, and there's difficulty in doing that from their perspective. But there's a convi- con- conviction that this is what God desires, that this is what the Holy Spirit is, okay? And uh, I'd be more than happy to talk to you about that. Certainly not saying that those people are unbelievers. My father is in heaven right now, convinced of it, okay? It's one extreme, though, okay? One extreme. The other extreme is this. The Holy Spirit is nothing, all right? The Holy Spirit is nothing. Now, this one is a little bit more difficult to peg because you don't typically have pastors or evangelists swaying crowds at stadiums with messages like, why I don't believe in the Holy Spirit. I mean, oh, let's go run to that message, right? I mean, that's, that's not exactly a draw. So it's a, little bit, it's a little bit harder to kind of nail this one, but clearly there are those under the broad umbrella of Christendom that would deny the present supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit. So let's just divide this group into two. First of all, I'm going to call this next group the liberal church. And when I say liberal, don't think political. Um, think, though, um, those people or those church organizations that have deteriorated into institutions of Christianity, or insti- sorry, institutions called Christian institutions, who would then have a form of godliness but deny its power, okay? And much of the mainline denominations struggle with this, right? A lot of Presbyterians, a lot of Methodists, um, uh, you could go to this Baptist, there's all sorts that have, I would say, mainline denominations that have gone this route. There's a liberal side to that particular denomination. And ultimately, believe it or not, they deny that there is a God as revealed in the Word of God. They would deny that Christ is the Son of God. But maybe he was a good person who was leading a good life and he's worthy to be followed, as an example at least. They would deny that the Word of God is truly the Word of God, but only a collection of writings by zealous religious men trying to help their religion along. And they would deny anything supernatural and ultimately, therefore, any Holy Spirit activity of any sort. Okay? Um, They deny the fundamentals, you might want to say, of the faith. This is the kind of church that if you and I were to attend, we would ask ourselves the question, why do they call themselves Christians? Right? Because they deny the core tenets of Christianity. Right? There's no Christianity taking place. I'm talking about practice. You're going to find nice people. You're going to find gentle people in that context. But we're saying, what do they actually believe? The second group here we can call on the other extreme would be the powerless church. Now, I'm, I'm coming up with these titles, okay? So um, don't you know, type it into Google. You're not going to find what, what I'm saying here. I'm just trying to categorize it by my thinking. 
By powerless, I mean to say that they believe in Christ, but they do not put any emphasis in the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit among believers. This may be the result of the abuses of the charismatic movement. Okay? We don't want to appear like the charismatic people, therefore we will deny any activity. We won't come even close to, to being emotional even or getting excited. Okay? We have the Bible, we have Jesus, that's all we need. All right? There may be a self-sufficient intellectual pride that treats any emotional experience with suspicion. And like I said, it may just be we have the Bible, we don't need anything else, that's it. Now friends, I've sat in all the churches I've talked about here. Maybe you have too. And in each place, there have been proud religious bullies as well as sincere, loving, and humble congregants. But in each of these examples, each of them yields a different approach to how you live your life, how you interact with God, how you deal with sin, how you enter heaven, how you love one another. Now, why, why am I taking the time to, to walk us through this? Bottom line, friends, because there's great confusion as to the person and the work, the role and the function of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. There's great confusion. And oftentimes, when you bring clarity from the Word of God, if you're doing that and you're challenging someone who has some belief that is different than what the Word of God says, then, of course, you are the bad person. You are the narrow-minded person. You're just the one who doesn't believe. Okay? So how do we avoid falling into one of these extreme polarized camps? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked. So let's think about the answer to that. It's very, very simple. Um, uh, we avoid falling into one of these camps by, um, by making sure falling into of these camps. All right, um, two things. Um, we must practice exegesis rather than eisegesis. Two very, very important words. Exegesis means... To, to lead out, okay? It literally means to, to, to honestly mine the text of God's word and see what it says without having any preconceived ideas. We come to the text of God's word and we say, okay, what is it you're saying here, Lord? Eisegesis comes to the text with a preconceived idea that wants to prove, or the idea that it wants to prove to read into or to impose on the text. And sadly, much of the church approaches the word of God with which form? Eisegesis. They already have some idea, and so they're trying to prove it from the word of God. Now hear this. We've got to be very, very careful if we're just putting our Bible on the shelf and saying, oh, I got something I really feel God wants me to do. Let me jump into the word of God and see if there's a way that I can prove it. Friends, if you want to distort the word of God, you can prove lots of things. And that's why you have, you have cult leaders that get up before their congregants and they open the Word of God, but they don't teach what it says. They teach what they want the Word of God to say. And they change it and they twist it. And the Apostle Paul warns the church about that kind of false teacher, twisting the Word of God, turning the gospel upside down, perverting it. So we must embrace exegesis rather than eisegesis. Okay? Now, friends, as a shepherd called to lead the flock, with his guidance and with his food, I am committed to the practice of careful exegesis. That's why a pastor locks himself into some study or a desk at Panera or someplace like that, and he 
just with the text and say, what is going on here? What is God saying? What is he seeking to, to communicate here? Not some mystical way, but what is he plainly saying? And how does that connect to the rest of that context? And how does that connect to the book that it's in? And how does that connect to the New Testament or Old Testament? How does it connect to the ongoing themes that are throughout the word of God? It requires hard work. Okay? Now, it's not what I want to say that's important. It's not what I want to teach you, but my desire is to teach you as best I can, having determined this is what the Word of God says. So this is an extremely important subject today because we're dealing with Jesus' words regarding the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit, and God wants us to gain an understanding. He doesn't want us to be on one of the extremes. He wants us to have a biblical I'll use the word balanced understanding of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And friends, with, all, with the milieu of ideas and things that, that are brought into this context here today, because we've all been in different places, we've all heard different things, uh, we need God's help. And I just want to ask you to join me for a word of prayer right now and uh, that, that he would just teach us and guide us through his word. Lord, help us today. And Lord, help our church and help... Lord, all those that are present, Lord, coming from, from different places, Lord, to just to honestly be humble before you and your word. There may be some here this morning that have already bristled at some of the things that I've said because there, there's, there's views and opinions that, that are brought into this context. And Lord, I, I ask that you give us all the humility just to simply say, Lord, what is it that you say? And allow what you say to feed us and to shape us and to give us a, an awareness and understanding of, of the ministry and the role of uh, the Holy Spirit, Lord, who is the third person of the Godhead. And Lord, help us today, uh, Lord, to be mindful, Lord, of what you are doing in our hearts through this. We ask in your name. Amen. Now, all that was proper, in my opinion, preparation for this text. Because what's important for us now uh, is to begin to understand what is happening in this gospel. I want to begin with a question here. How are the disciples described in this text? I'm just going through this text, and I'm just pulling out different ways in which they are described. First of all, they're described as those who love Christ. Four times that comes up. So what Jesus is saying here, the instructions that are given are given to those who love Christ. Description of the disciples, ultimately a description for believers. Secondly, those who will keep his commandments and his word to the same thing. So there, there's, there is a sense in which what's going on here is there are some, some prerequisites here and assumptions that Jesus is making. If you're the one who loves me, you will then do what? You will keep my commandments. You will keep my word. Look at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, you, whoever loves my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 21, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So, that's very important. Love Christ, keep his commandments and his word. Third thing here, <clears throat> those who <clears throat> are his children. You say, well, it doesn't specifically say that. No, it doesn't. Verse 18 says this, I will not leave you as orphans. Well, if I'm not going to leave you as orphans, what am I leaving you as? My children. That's what I've already called you. And if you're my children... My going away doesn't result in you being orphans. You are still my children. I'm not abandoning you. All right? Then there are those 
who rejoice. Verse 28, if you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. You say, well, that's not saying that they are rejoicing. I know it's not saying that they're rejoicing, but he's saying, if you would love me, and ultimately if you understood what was going on, you would be rejoicing. And so you, you are, as my children, to be rejoicing. But let me explain what's going on so that you can rejoice. Okay? And we'll flesh that out a little bit more. Those who believe, verse 29, those who believe. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. All right? So here's this picture of these disciples. They, they are ones who are just totally committed to Jesus as their master. They love him. They want to keep his commandments. They, they, they want to do his word. Um, they, they, are, they recognize that they are his children. They, 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 they do rejoice when they have understanding about what he's doing, and they are those who believe. And friends, that's a description of all of us kind of just working through our walk with God. All right? Now, here's my proposition for this morning. Here's how we're going to kind of unpack and and lay out this text. So on this last night before Jesus' departure, we find Jesus in the upper room comforting his troubled disciples with the promise of the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so in this passage, we're going to see three realities of the coming Holy Spirit. Three realities. Try to find a word that would kind of draw these things together. But these are, these are pictures, these are perspectives, these are realities, truths, you might say, about the coming Holy Holy Spirit. And so let's just jump in with the first one here. Um, oh. All right. He is, first of all, the gift that we receive. He is the gift that we receive. Verse 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another help, helper. Right? A little later on, but the helper whom the Father will send in my name. Um, this is a the Holy Spirit is a gift to us, okay? Now, he's called here in verse 16. He says, and I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. So Jesus is telling his disciples that he'll ask the Father for another helper, and this helper is the gift, and um, we, are, we have this word another, and this is a really, really important word. In the Greek language, there are two words for another. There's, there's uh, alos, which is used here, and eteros, all right? Alos and eteros. You say, well, why is that important? Well, it's important because there are two different ways you can say another. There's another of the same kind or similar kind. It doesn't always have to be exactly the same. Or there's another of a different kind. So when Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm sending you, and, I'm, and the Father's going to give you another helper, he's emphasizing the fact here that this helper that he's sending is going to be another one just like me. Now, he's not exactly like Jesus, right? Because Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Word made flesh. His role and function in the Godhead is different than the Holy Spirit. But in his essence, in his attributes, he is God. So he's saying, I'm not abandoning you. I'm not leaving you alone. I'm sending another Helper just like me. Now, we think about the word helper. This is also really important. This is the word parakeleo, which means a person who is walking alongside. All right? Para 
parakaleo, to walk alongside. That's the idea there. So we call it a paraclete. We can, def- we can define it by, by using the word advocate, comforter, counselor. Uh, in fact, one of the songs that we sang here used a number of those different descriptions. So he's saying here, this one that I'm sending who is like me is going to be your helper. He's going to be your comforter, your counselor. He's the one who walks alongside you. Okay? But if he's, a lo- if he's like me, who has been walking alongside them? Jesus has been walking alongside them. He has been their comforter, their counselor, their helper, ultimately their advocate. So this tells us that the Holy Spirit will carry on what Jesus has already been doing with the disciples. In other words, the role of the Holy Spirit is not to jump in and say, all right, new things are going on. The role of the Holy Spirit is to step in and to continue what Jesus has already been doing. In the same, I want to say, way, ideology that Jesus was doing it. Let's put it this way. Jesus, then, is the helper who will be transitioning his physical divine presence with the spiritual divine presence of the Holy Spirit. All right? Jesus, physically present, going to depart. The Holy Spirit, spiritually present, is coming. Now, let me ask you this question. Is it easier for us to identify with physical Jesus Or is it easier for us to identify with spiritual Holy Spirit? And I would say probably it's the tangible. And can you just think about the disciples here? You've been ministering with him. You've been taught by him. You've been learning from him. You've been able to ask him questions and stuff like that. Well, guess what? When the Holy Spirit comes, they're going to continue that ongoing ministry. It's going to continue, but in a different way. And so how you... How you are secure in that relationship is not because you can physically touch and you can physically see, but it's because you can trust what has already been said. And that fleshes out for us. How many of you here have ever touched Jesus? How do you know he exists? I'll tell you how, because you trust the Holy Spirit's breathing out of his word and what it says and the evidence that is there that he truly was and that he has ascended up on high and now we have the Holy Spirit that is living in our hearts. Okay. So we, 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 we struggle with the, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit oftentimes because we can't, we can't see him. But there's some things here that we're told about who the Holy Spirit is. He is eternal. Right? He's, we're told he'll be with you forever. Secondly, he is the spirit of truth. Just like Jesus who came full of truth and grace, he is the spirit of truth. Hold on. All right. He is unknown to the world. Notice what it says. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. There's that tangible thing, right? They can't see him. They can't know him. The world is blind to his presence and activity. In fact, the closest thing that I think they can ever come to is the energy, you know, or some kind of a force, all you Star Wars fans, all right? But that's, that's... That's not the Holy Spirit. He's not just some kind of a force. They're blind to his activity. They're blind to who he truly is. And then finally here, he is known to God's children. Look, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. He dwells with you now. He will be in you later. Now, just 
Eyes open here. What is the present activity of the Holy Spirit up to this point so far? What is Jesus saying? The Holy Spirit is already with you. But he will be ultimately in you. Just hold on to that thought. Now the readers of John's gospel are prepared for this by the comments in John chapter 7. Look at John chapter 7 and verse 37. John chapter 7, a few pages back. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me is, uh, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Interesting picture. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him, that would be Christ, were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay? And you're going to see as we go on through this passage that it's when something happens later on that the disciples are going to go, aha, now I understand, aha, I see his presence, aha, I see the activity. That's what's being talked about here. So we've already been prepared somewhat. There's a couple other places where he said to the disciples, hey, listen, you know what? You will eventually uh, remember this. And when you do, you will what? What's the word? Believe. Okay? Now we see ultimately the importance of two things. First of all, the resurrection. We see the importance of the resurrection. Picking it up now at verse 18. And just hear this. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, so Jesus is in the upper room, and he says, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. Boom, he's gone. But you will see me, because why? I live. You also will live. What's that referring to? It's the resurrection. Jesus is going to rise from the tomb. He's going to be gone, and yet he's going to rise. And because I live, you also will live in that day. That's not a statement about some future thing that has taken place way off in the future like a prophetic in that day. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So in that day, his resurrection and all that takes place with his glorification, his presence. If you remember, Jesus interacts with his disciples after his resurrection and then ultimately ascends into heaven. At that moment in time, things are going to happen. Their minds are going to be open. The light is going to come on. And the Holy Spirit's activity in their life is going to be at work. That's what he's saying. Now notice what he says here, though. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. You try and run around the coffee table a few times to figure that one out, right? Jesus is going to dwell in us. So he's referring to his resurrection. It will make sense. You will fully believe. You will understand. But how? How will that take place? Well, he continues on, and this is what we call the revelation. Right? Not the revelation as in the book, the revelation, but the revelation by virtue of the Holy Spirit's ministry in our life. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest 
myself to him. So Jesus is saying, when all this happens in that day, all these things are taking place, and I am going to be in you, and when I am in you, I am going to manifest. I'm going to make myself known to you. And friends, ultimately we see from other passages of Scripture that that is the ministry, that is the activity of the Holy Spirit at work in the believer. He is the one that makes Christ known. Now, how many of you here got a gift for Christmas? Raise your hand. If you didn't, we'll get you one, okay? Um, When you got that gift, you took it, had your name on it, you unwrapped it, you opened it, and you either went like, wow, or like, "Mm mm-hmm, okay? Um, But oftentimes, gifts aren't just there just to kind of, you know, just look at. Some are. Um, Sometimes they're there because it smells, all right? Sometimes it's something you eat. Sometimes it's something you wear. But oftentimes you get a gift, and it's not simply leaving it there and looking at it that's important. It's, it's, you want to actually find out how it works and how it benefits you, right? All right I mean, just guys, just think about it. If, if, if you for Christmas got a brand new toolbox full of tools, now if you're like me, you would sit back, open up, and say, those are nice and shiny, right? But it really doesn't benefit me until what? I pick them up and I begin to understand what they look like and what they're for and how they work and all that kind of stuff, okay? My point here is this. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. But that is not the end of the story. So we're talking next then about the gift that we have been given that ultimately is our gain. He is the gain that we experience. Now friends, simply because there may be a distorted understanding of the Holy Spirit, and I want to say on the charismatic side of things, does not mean that we as believers should not be living lives that have certain experiences. All right, what does experience mean? Have you ever read God's word and felt strengthened or empowered to do what God is calling you to do? Yes, that is an experience of sorts, right? All right, it's, it's, it's being motivated. Feelings and all that kind of stuff are the result of God at work through his word, empowered by the Holy Spirit in your life. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is a gain for the believer. So let's think through what that gain is. And this is how the the Holy Spirit is manifesting Christ to us. And so Judas' question is a really good question. Judas Iscariot, or not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? How will this happen? How will we experience this? How will we know? And we're going to read a whole section here. Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, let's just step back and just say, do you see the three persons of the Godhead in this text? I mean, is it a stretch? Are we forcing it out of this text? Or is it just kind of like clearly kind of laid out there? 
There's Christ who's speaking. That's why the letters in your Bible probably are red. Okay? That was not inspired red, but that's how man has collected Christ's words. He's speaking about the Father who is going to send the Helper. And Jesus defines and clarifies the Helper is who? The Holy Spirit. All right? Clearly here we have the presence of the Trinity. Now, Jesus reveals three ongoing ministries of the Holy Spirit in these short verses here. They're, they're unique to the children of God. The first one is this, that he is our teacher. He is our teacher. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. So you've got this teaching and this bringing to your remembrance. Now, just remember who he's speaking to here. He's speaking to the disciples who will ultimately be the apostles. So what is it that the Holy Spirit will teach the disciples? I'm not asking you to kind of wander around your head to find that answer. I'm asking you, what does the text say? He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He's not bringing new stuff. He's bringing back what I have taught you, what I have said to you. So he's teaching them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that Jesus is the light of the world, that he is the bread of life, that he is the shepherd of the sheep. He's going to be reinforcing those things. There's a sense that, that although Jesus taught them that there is much more to know. So Jesus is saying in essence this, my dear disciples, you see me now in my ministry and I am going. You will know me less, but you haven't begun to know me yet. On that day, The light will go on and you will see me as one with the Father. So things are just going to start falling into place because of the active ministry of the Holy Spirit, reminding them of what Jesus said, reminding of what he taught them. So the Holy Spirit comes as teacher to reveal the depths of Christ to them. They will not know less of Christ, but they will know more of him. And so let's just think a few passages here. Uh, four, chapter 14, verse 26, tells us here, we've just been reading, he'll teach you, he'll remind you of everything. Look at chapter 16 and verse 13. Another passage which we'll get to eventually, chapter 16, dealing with the Holy Spirit and his activity again. But there we're told that he will speak only what he hears and tell you what is yet to come. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So the Holy Spirit is still under the authority of the Father. Verse 15 now. He will testify about you, and you must testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Ultimately is what he's saying. He will glorify me, verse 14. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus is saying, it's what's mine, he's going to declare it to you. It's what's mine, he's going to declare it to you. Everything he says, he's getting from the Father, he's getting from me to declare to you. Okay? I just, just put that kind of in a context here and, and help you understand and frame the role and the function of the Holy Spirit as teacher. So the Holy Spirit takes these, these uh, prepared men and he will guide them ultimately to pen the New Testament for the benefit of the growth of the church. That's why in 2 Peter 1.21, turn there, 2 Peter 1.21, I want you to notice what this says. 
just, and just you know, putting all this stuff together here. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, who are these men? Are they just a bunch of rabble guys who wanted to promote their religion and said, let's write some things down and hopefully we can, maybe we can get together in some kind of a room and come up with similar plans and our gospels can be identical and all that kind of stuff? Uh, boy, it takes a lot of faith just to, to try and say that man put all this together. I mean, the, the New Testament has, this, has the stamp of the Holy Spirit's activity on it because it is so consistent and clear. Yes, they wrote out their various letters. Yes, they wrote out their Gospels, but it is ultimately by virtue of the Holy Spirit breathing into their lives, carrying them along. The picture there that carried along is like a, is like a boat with a, a sail and, and the Holy Spirit breathing into that sail, moving them along. So the Holy Spirit has this incredible ministry of teaching for his disciples. Now, friends, we are not those original disciples. We are not receiving any new revelation. We have the Word of God. It is the Holy Spirit that works through the Word of God and teaches us here. And this, again, is one of the ways in which the Holy, the, the Holy, the, this emphasis, undue emphasis in the Holy Spirit causes difficulty in the body of Christ when we set aside the Word of God for, for some kind of unique revelation that we believe the Holy Spirit is giving us. Okay? So he's our teacher. Secondly, he's our counselor. He's our counselor. He's our helper. Now, some of the language that's being used here could be confusing. This word parakaleo means literally to walk alongside. It's a word, as we talked about, is translated counselor, helper, uh, um, comforter. But the best way to understand it is to use the word advocate. The Holy Spirit is different to Jesus in that he has a unique role and function in the Godhead, but he is, like I said, in essence um, and character the same as Jesus, equal with Jesus as the third person of the Trinity. So when Jesus says the Father will give you another helper, he's identifying the fact that he has already been the helper to his disciples, right? Now, to give clarity to this word paracolette, we must understand the nature of this helping. And this is where our language, our modern-day language, kind of confuses things. Sometimes if we use the word comforter, we tend to, to lean on this picture of, of someone coming alongside someone else um, at, a, at a funeral and just giving them a hug and that kind of stuff. And see, the Holy Spirit, he's our hugger, okay? He's our comforter in that sense. Um, and certainly there's elements of the Holy Spirit's ministry that is comforting, but don't relegate him to that. Um, that's an insufficient picture. If we say that he is our counselor, it's possible we might tend to think of the Holy Spirit being like a camp counselor. You know, yeah, 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 you can do it, you can do it, yeah, 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 you know, or, or maybe even bringing, you know, psychology into things. Like, well, he's your counselor in that sense, how we read into that role and function, but that would also be insufficient. If we say he's our helper, we might tend to see him as one who simply gives good tips and ideas along the way. You know, you're just kind of going through life and all of a sudden, bing, you know, oh, the Holy Spirit, you know, he's going to help me to make the right choice in purchasing this cheese or this cheese, right? And, you know, he's the helper in that sense. That's not what this word is talking about. And, and so the, the, better, the better word here is the word advocate because this word actually is a legal word. It has a legal context, has a legal meaning. The Holy Spirit is our counselor. 
If you go into a legal context and you say, who is your counsel? It is your advocate, is the one that is taking your place, representing you before the judge, right? That's the role and function then of this Holy Spirit. He is our counsel before the righteous demands of the Father. He's our comfort in helping us understand the nature of our salvation, its effect. He's our helper teaching us how to live for God's glory. But ultimately, he is our advocate speaking to the Father against the devil on our behalf. But even that picture is insufficient because of our own culture, because in our day, when we go out and hire a lawyer or an advocate to represent us, typically we've never met them before in our lives. And typically we're spending all sorts of money. And so we hire them to, you know, to work hard on our behalf and to explain the reasons why we're not guilty. But in Jesus' day, when you went to the court, you didn't hire a lawyer. You brought along a person who was your very best friend who knows you more than anyone else to stand before that court and say, listen, I know this person. I am his brother. I am his friend. I can testify of this person's character and their guilt and their innocence. So when we're told here that he is our advocate, we, we have the idea that he not only is advocating for us, but he knows us intimately. He is interacting with us daily. He comprehends our struggles. He knows our needs. And he goes before the Father when the devil is accusing. And he says, no, 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 you cannot accuse him because the blood of Jesus Christ has paid for his sin. So he's our teacher. He's our advocate. There's one more, though. There's one more in this passage. Might be a little unusual, but I think it's really important to see. He's our homemaker. Holy Spirit is our homemaker. Well, Look at verse 17. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be what? In you. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus is saying to the believer, it's not just the Holy Spirit, that is, residing in you, but the Father and the Son are also residing in you. That's what he's saying. We desire to make our home in you. So this is true of Jesus himself. He says in chapter 14, verse 2, I am going ahead to, to make ready a room. You say, why is that important? Because it's the same word here that is being described here in verse 23. We will make our home. We will make our room in you. So he sends the Spirit to make a home for the dwelling of the Father and the Son in the life or in the heart of a believer. That's pretty powerful. It's not just that Jesus is nearby. He now is in you. So Jesus says, I'll not leave you as orphans. Yeah, exactly. You will not. <laughs> You'll be dwelling in me. I will love him and make myself known. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. He will also make my life a home. So Jesus is saying, make him, make the Christian homely, not ugly, but a home for me. 
Now, in our culture, a homemaker is often despised. Oh, you're a homemaker. What's the other word for that? Huh? A housewife. Yeah, I heard that one. Yeah. What's another one? Proper name for that? A domestic boss. Absolutely. Okay. All right. There's all sorts of things you can come up with that. But you know what? Um, in, in, in the economy of Christ here, in the economy of the Godhead, he comes and the God, Father, and Jesus come and they, they make their home in us. Just let that settle in. If you're a child of God, let that settle in of what he promises and what he says about what he's doing right now with you. Jesus has purchased a ruined shack and is building a castle and will make it his home. You and I are the shack that has turned into a castle. Not because of anything we've done. He doesn't say, now just clean up the place a little bit, then I'll come, right? Is that what he says? No, he says, I'm coming by virtue of the Holy Spirit to make residence with you. Now, friends, that is gain. He teaches us. He is our advocate. And he is the one that resides in us. But not only is he the gain that we experience and the gift that we receive, he's also the grace that we need. He's the grace that we need. Now, you're not going to find the word grace here, but I think the concept of grace is fleshed out now in these last few verses. Notice what he says. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Now, let me ask you a question. Is peace a good gift? <laughs> See, it's, it's a grace. And it's the result. It's ultimately the result of the gift being given to us, and it's a result of the activity and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we can ultimately be at peace. So when Jesus says, peace I leave with you, yeah, it can be kind of a greeting or it can be kind of a way to say, hey, I'm leaving and give you peace, but I think it is the result of the ongoing presence and activity of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And of course, behind the ministry of the Holy Spirit is the ministry of Jesus Christ that is pushing and feeding and is the food for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So it is, first of all, a unique peace. It is a unique peace. Here we go. It is a unique peace. It is uniquely His. It's the peace that I give you. It has His trademark on it. It's not a Republican peace. It's not a Democrat peace. It's not kind of a world nations peace. It is the peace that only comes from Jesus Christ. It is a, secondly, a full-orbed peace, meaning that you're reconciled with God. Here are two very important passages on the subject of peace. Romans 5.1, we began our service with it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, such an important statement, we have been declared righteous we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross in dying 
and shedding his blood for our sins, when we have embraced him as our Lord and Savior, we have been drawn by God to the cross and we have received this good news of the gospel, we have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we are at peace with God. We're reconciled. Secondly, there's also the peace of God. Peace of God. For chapter, Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the peace of God, friends, is one is justification, which means this is, it's a, it's a one-time act. You're at peace. You're reconciled to him. But the peace of God comes as we are obedient to the instructions and directions of the Holy Spirit, ultimately God, as he reveals his word to us. So you want, you want to live for God's glory? Then you're going to keep his commandments, right? You're going to follow his word. When you choose not to do that, guess what? Conflict. You will not have the peace of God. That's the idea here. So one is positional, our position in Christ. The next one has to do with our own sanctification, our walk with him. Then there's a stable peace. It's, it's not as the world gives. The world gives a temporary peace. Jesus gives a lasting peace. The world's peace is shallow. Jesus' peace is deep and penetrating. Let me give a picture of that. And you guys... You know, work at a school. Ever been in a kid's playground? Kids get in a scuffle. The teacher pulls them together and says, right, say I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, I say, say I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, now you can go. Now, let's put this in the right perspective. Properly speaking, how did you sin against that person? Well, you know, I kicked him in the shins and I wanted that ball. Yeah, that was idolatry and you were lusting and you responded in the flesh, didn't you? Yeah, I did. That's a sin. You need to get it right with God. And you need to get it right with this person. And how did you, how did you sin here? Well, yeah, I responded and I, you know, I hit him in the face and I really shouldn't have done that and blah, blah, blah. And you deal with the sin. When the sin is dealt with and then the, the conflict is dealt with on a gospel level, then you have true peace. Not just say, I'm sorry. Okay. It's like, I'm sorry, idiot. I'm gonna, you know. that's, I mean, that's usually how it goes, right? You know what I'm talking about. You remember being on the playground. But a gospel-centered Peace doesn't come in shallow fashion. It comes with a deep and penetrating activity of the gospel into the life of the believer. The world's peace is also simply one that deals with symptoms. Jesus' peace deals with substance. It gets to the heart of the matter. Right? So it's not like the world's peace. But not only that, let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why? This is a powerful peace. There are reasons to be troubled. Remember the context. There are reasons to be troubled. Jesus is going away. He is going to die. We don't quite understand it. We've been with him all this time. But not only that, the world is going to hate him and it's going to hate us. Not only that, we have the, the presence of, the, 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 uh, of this, this evil one, Satan, who's going to be there. I mean, there's all sorts of things that are concerning us. And Jesus says, listen, my peace is far more powerful than that trouble. Now listen, chapter 16, verse 33. Turn there, if you would, please, just a few pages over. Chapter 16, verse 33. Here's what Jesus says. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. 
in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is important because peace and tribulation go hand in hand. Peace does not mean there will not be any trouble in this world. Peace means that when I'm in the midst of trouble, I have perspective because I'm allowing God through his Holy Spirit to minister my soul and get anchored with his ongoing plan in my life. And it doesn't change what he is sovereignly accomplishing. It is what he wants me to go through. Do you understand, friend, that the disciples here are being pushed by Jesus into a whole other realm, that Jesus is stepping out of the way purposefully so that they will begin to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit and then with the ministry of the Holy Spirit do great things for the gospel. That's the book of Acts. If Jesus had stayed, he would not have left. I know it's obvious, right? But in leaving, he opens up the door for new things to take place and for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be at work in the lives of these men. But not only is it a powerful peace, it's also an assuring peace. Notice the, in verse 28, you know, if only you understood, you would rejoice. That's the idea here. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the the Father is greater than I. And the, the idea there is this. Listen, this is why it's assuring. If only you understood, you would rejoice. How many times as a parent with that child who's been disobedient, you're just saying, if only they would just stop and listen, they would realize that I'm not trying to get you in trouble, but the more you're responding, the more you're creating problems, means I'm going to have to deal with the trouble, right? But if only, if only you knew, if only you understood. But oftentimes we do foolish things because we don't know. And Jesus is looking at the disciples and saying, listen, if only you understood, you would rejoice because my going now ushers in new things for you. Secondly here, verse 29, and now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. So it begins with, if only you understood, you would rejoice. Secondly, when you understand, you will believe. Okay? Well, once you understand, it's going to result in belief. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, pow, you will believe. What Jesus said has taken place. What Jesus said has taken place. Wow. Over and over and over again, what he said has proven to be true. Believe. And then verse 30 and 31. Say it this way. Not only, only if you understand, you will rejoice, or when you understand, you will believe, but as you understand, you will love and obey. I will no longer talk much with you, for the rule of this world is coming. <laughs> he has no claim on me. Get this. Is that assuring? <laughs> Satan is coming. <laughs> but he has no claim on me. Is that prophetic? <laughs> I've got it under control. You may be going through some difficult times. But get this. But I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. What has Jesus already said to his disciples? If you love me, you would do what? Keep my commandments. You would heed my word. 
Jesus is saying to them, do what I have already been doing with my Father. And friends, that's very assuring. He's, the Holy Spirit, because of Jesus, is our gift. He is our gain. He is also the grace that we need to live our lives. And how many of us have been defeated in a moment because we are consumed with the sin that we're struggling with? Hands go up all over the place. And we need to be reminded, hey, you are justified. You have peace with God. But now you need to pursue the peace of God. And that peace of God comes from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, working through his word, convicting you of sin, convincing you that what you're doing is sin, and that you come humbly before him. You reconcile through forgiveness and through repentance, and you have the ultimate peace of God, and you seek to live and, and, and grow in your walk by obeying his word and trusting his word and listening to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, who is ultimately declaring Jesus as the one who is the reason for your satisfaction. Friends, we are incredibly graced by the activity and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now I want to bring things to a close with a few thoughts. Some, conclu some concluding thoughts. I just want to ask that you give some perspective here with me, Okay. Number one, like Jesus, the Holy Spirit is with us at every step of our lives. And just think about Jesus' life. The Holy Spirit was with Jesus at conception, was he not? As he grew, as he entered ministry, at his baptism, at his temptation, as he ministered while he was on trial, while he hung on the cross, as he laid in the tomb. Just like he has been with Jesus, he will also be with us every step and in every place, he is with you now. He is saying to you, hear this, and I can say this with clear conviction, pay attention to my word. Listen to Jesus' counsel. Don't let your heart be troubled. And friends, we have many things that trouble us. I know you can't see him, I know he's hard to relate to, but you understand him by allowing the word of God to, to teach you. Not what you feel, not what you think, but what the word of God reveals about him. Secondly, allow the Holy Spirit as the intangible and faceless person of the Trinity, sorry, although he is, he is very much a part of your life. It kind of builds on the first one, but I would encourage you, learn about him. Seek to know how he works in your life. Submit to his guidance. But remember, and be careful, there's a lot of unbiblical teaching out there about who he is and how he works. Now remember, he's carrying on the ministry of Jesus. And so therefore, what he says does not contradict Jesus. In fact, it should be consistent with what Jesus says, not a replacement of what Jesus says. And the final thing here is this. All this teaching is given so that the disciples can move on and serve Jesus with their lives. Look at the last part of verse 31. What does it say? Rise. Let us go from here. Now, Jesus is not speaking in the upper room to say, wasn't that great? You feel a little better now? Just wanted to kind of, you know, nurse your inner psyche a little bit just so you feel better. 
No, he is giving them instructions because they are troubled, but the purpose of these instructions, these tender words, is so that when he leaves, they will do what? They will believe and they will do what he has called them to do. And it's not going to be easy. There's going to be great opposition, but they needed to have the certainty that the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit was present in their lives, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is going to heaven to prepare a place for them, that he, Jesus Christ, is sufficient for them, and that he is at work with a divine purpose through them. And friends, we have the blessing of the New Testament because of these disciples and the apostles, and ultimately you add to that the Apostle Paul, because they recognized that God was at work, and he was at work through them. And they were guided, they were taught, they were encouraged, they were strengthened. They recognized that the Holy Spirit was residing in them along with Christ and the Father, you know, put your hands around that one, think about that one, and ultimately, we are counseled by the counselor in the context of trouble. And that counselor isn't just the Holy Spirit, that counselor is also Jesus Christ, the one whom or for whom the Holy Spirit speaks and counsels us. Lord, help us today to step back and to think of ourselves as being up in that room listening to Jesus and his tender, passionate, powerful words, wrestling with our own struggle. Lord, we, we come today with heartaches because of relationships. We come today with health issues, Lord, that are serious and, and things that we struggle with. We come today with, with sin that is private, that we're burdened about. We come today with maybe a an uncertainty about the future. Lord, there's all sorts of things that, that we bring today into this context. And Lord, I just, I just ask that as we step back and we think about what you're teaching the disciples in, in this wonderful upper room discourse, that we would be confident and we would be at peace because of your ministry and because of your promises. And Lord, that we would trust you, that we would be balanced our understanding of what you do and how you do it, that we would allow your word to teach and to feed us and to give us clarity. And Lord, that if there is confusion, that we would either seek help or we would dig deeper into your word to find clarity there and just ask the Holy Spirit to guide us and to direct us. Lord, we need you. We don't want to be extreme. We want to simply do what you've called us to do. So Lord, Teach us, shape us, mold us. Lord, may Gateway Bible Church be a place that is alive because of the gospel, that is alive because of the present work and activity of the Holy Spirit in the lives of your children. Lord, help us to take our responsibilities seriously and Lord, to go and to do what you've called us to do with vigor and for your glory, we ask in your name. Amen.